special episode, we speak to a staff student panel about their experiences of speaking with an accent in the university environment. The class ceiling were also granted unique access to Rebecca Montecuti, Senior Research and Policy Manager at the Sutton Trust, for an illuminating conversation about the recent Speaking Up report that looks at accents and social mobility. I'm Gina, I'm the Director of Widening Participation and Social Mobility. And I'm Matt, I look after the uh, data analysis team at the university. And hi, I'm Bilal, I'm a first year medic. Thank you for your time today. Welcome to the Class Ceiling Podcast. What do you think <laughs> accents reflect? I was literally talking about this earlier on today with some colleagues and what's very definitive about accents in my, in my view is that they're 100% cultural and organic so they come from like cultural factors that affect you know how people talk and and the words they use and and what other influences might be might be sort of underneath them and obviously you can modify that depending on you know your environment whether you're at work or home but ultimately their roots are like 100% cultural um and they they have that authenticity I guess that you can't manufacture does anyone have an example of a situation where your accent has been an issue or indeed you've experienced accent bias? Yes, I do. Well, I was born in Pakistan, but I was still moved to Italy. And then I came to the UK when I was 16. So I spent 14 years living in Italy with my family. And uh, when I speak in English, I believe I have an Italian accent. And I did uh, experience some sort of bias when I joined high school in the UK. And that is because I believe that uh, some of my uh, classmates, they acted towards me in a certain way. And I believe it was due to my Italian accent. I can have probably a slightly different sort of angle on that, really, which is I've working particularly prior to my current role in London. Uh, I found myself working with a lot of international colleagues. And one of the challenges we quite often had was where colleagues had learned English as a second language. The accent is so far from that sort of the courses they've done in that sort of either American English or I suppose sort of very southernized English that quite often language courses are done in that I found colleagues quite often were struggling to understand me which was it was very much a barrier and it wasn't that either of us weren't trying as a source of problem it was more a case of because there was so little exposure of this kind of sort of I mean in my case of very much a Midlands accent is it made it a lot more difficult for people and I don't know as I'd call it it wasn't sort of a discriminatory relationship it actually made things a lot harder I think for both me and those colleagues because of that sort of the nature of how language is taught around the world. Do you think that accent bias is always obvious or can it be discreet and kind of undetectable? I'd say in quite a lot of cases it's probably very discreet and I think one example I can sort of draw is I remember being in a meeting once and given an idea that no the people in the meeting would have known me professionally they knew my background knew sort of skills that I'd got 
where people have quite, on occasion been quite surprised at me knowing or understanding concepts. And the only thing I can put down to it, in my opinion, is probably because of the way I sound, because I have a, I've had the same academic background as a lot of the, the people I was sat around with. So I, it's very hard to find another angle they might have gone at it from. But I think like many kinds of bias, it's very difficult to pin down in a lot of cases. I think it's so important that you've said that. And I think it's the first time someone has said that in this series of podcasts. And I think it's a really brave, brave thing to say that actually I can't think of another reason as to why I got that reaction. Yeah, and I mean, it does, I will admit at the same time, that's probably quite me potentially being very above my station a little bit with that. But it is, I don't know, sometimes it's almost that feeling of needing to challenge it a bit and sort of thing. At the time, I wasn't in a setting where I could, but it was kind of a, what what was the reason behind that? And sort of asking that question quite critically, really. And, just uh, very, yeah, just very quickly, the Speaking Up report that's just been produced by the Sutton Trust mentioned about people with accents not wanting to seem above their station. It's probably, unfortunately, it's probably, yeah, I suppose, I don't know, is it, does an accent put you in its place in that sense? It's a, probably a whole podcast on that alone, to be fair. I think, though, the converse line of, of thinking around that, though, is that there's perhaps a confidence that comes with a more received pronunciation accent that essentially presents as as knowing a lot more and then in, and thus inspiring confidence in in the audience more maybe I don't know and and now you say that Matt actually there are a few times where you know I've been surprised that other people have been surprised that I know what I'm talking about do you know what I mean which which maybe is is that or it might be something else but yeah it's it's a good point. I think historically, if we look at particularly at the media, the authority figures have been these very renounced pronunciation southerners and that's sort of noise. And I think quite often as a result, even now, there's almost an unconscious bias, probably when a lot of people have, that's what the person who knows what they're talking about sounds like. Now, we know that's not always the case, but there may be an element of that comes into it. And I think it, it alienates a lot of people. And I don't think just regionally as well. I think even people who come to the UK and sort of have not even non sort of regional accents within the UK it has the same effect to some extent I think it's been noted there seems to be just like a lack of like representation of different accents or most commonly like northern West Midlands accents on TV I think when Emmerdale started I think it's Emmerdale I do apologize to any like soap fans that I've offended when that started I'm pretty sure that was like quite a big thing so the first time you were seeing like characters like whole cast of people portrayed with like a northern accent so when do you guys feel like the, um, the accent bias you experience in your life, where do you think it's most prominent? In what environments? I do remember many times when I would suggest something in a meeting, not in this role, I have to say, when I've just been like, why are you not listening to me? Like, why is no one hearing what I'm saying? Like, surely you can all see the value in what I've just said. And then someone else will say it, who's got more confidence perhaps behind how they say it, or a, sim- a very similar point, and it lands a lot better. And for a long time, like my cheeks would burn at that, where I'd be like, why haven't you heard what I've just said? How did you not hear what I just said? And I think when I think back over time, and I- I've-, I've seen things get enacted, or I've seen things get pushed forward, that like worse ideas than what I've had or whatever, which I appreciate is a subjective and quite arrogant thing to say. I've often thought, you know what? We could have done some things in a better way. We could have done things in a more efficient way or a more effective way, but we chose 
this other way because somebody presented it in a more confident slash well posher way and that's what we decided to go with and i think in that case like the if, if we're calling it discrimination which i have to say i'm I'm a bit uncomfortable about using in this particular scenario because I don't, I don't know if that's what it was. But if we're calling it that and we're, we're considering that that's, that does happen, then we are then being clear that some of the best ideas, some of the brighter ideas that come from diverse perspectives, experiences, backgrounds, insights are discounted because they're presented in a way that does not carry as much social cachet as, as other less effective ideas you know and then i think that's really problematic because obviously firstly you know it diminishes the person that you know has the good ideas but secondly it's no good for organizations because it promotes ways of working and approaches to doing things that just aren't as good you know so therefore i think discrimination just is self-defeating in that sense because it is just not really pushing anything forward and and the organisations are missing out on cracking ideas as well. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah that, and and I think as a society we've got a real problem with that because you know it's not just it's not just classism you know it's it's racism it's sexism people are discounted because of the this the the baggage like the the kind of like discrimination that people attach to things and as a result of that you know not only is it like morally like bad to do it but we're just completely missing out on different ways of doing things more more effective and efficient and you know it's it's self-defeating it's, it's stupid given the accent we grew up with is unrelated to the knowledge and expertise that we acquire how can we reduce this risk of discriminating against well-qualified people because of their social background i think from my point of view it, it it's a difficult one in the sense it's going to be a very long-term solution. But I think what we really need is more people in these positions of authority that sound like us. It's probably the sort of colloquial way of putting it. Until you feel you belong, you're never going to have that kind of authority or your ideas aren't going to be taken the same way. And I think it is going to be a barrier to access for a lot of people. I would like to say that perhaps we could start by increasing diversity to your team. For example, if you're doing a recruitment or something, you could ask that we are looking for people from these type of specific backgrounds or experiences. And starting with this sort of thing would then promote that these kind of people are already in the in the company, for example, and then they can also level up and move higher in the position. And eventually, as Matthew was saying, they, they can become the people in power and they can bring about a real change. And just just to add, and probably a note onto that as well, I know a lot of employers are currently sort of trialling or in some cases using, uh, they call it unconscious bias training. And this covers not just accents, but a wide array of different things in the recruitment process. But the very loosely speaking, the idea is to be very sort of self-reflective on just the thing I'm actually recruiting or sort of challenging linked to the job at all. And it it's avoiding these situations where we recruit which is natural we'll try and recruit people who look and sound and feel are just like us basically and I think some employers have seen a lot of success with that is but it's definitely I think in a lot of cases it's infancy it's not sort of widespread by any means. As an organisation Southampton I think has, has got really quite quite an interesting representation of accents across uh, particularly um, you know a senior level which I, I think is a really a positive thing and something that I feel I don't feel here for example that 
people are I hope they're not are kind of like laughing about how I talk um and I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that there are regional accents there are people with regional accents in uh in 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 sort of like fairly senior positions here as well so have any of you noticed a difference in attitudes towards accents or accent bias between different genders? So how do you think women and men might experience accent bias and discrimination differently? You know, as a, a panel of uh, men, it's a difficult one to comment on subjectively because we, we obviously see it through our own lens, our own personal experiences. However, for people who are in the social mobility network or or who are, have sort of followed this in the news will know that there's a class pay gap right so people from working class backgrounds are paid less and what that study also shows is that is compounded if you are a woman or if you are from certain ethnic minorities so it seems like the evidence is suggesting that there is a double disadvantage if you are female and you are working class and I don't have uh, necessarily evidence to support that that might be to do with accents. However, if we're thinking about it through the lens of classism, I would envisage that there's some of that to be unpacked within that that particular statistic. How important is representation? And is there anyone out there in the media, in the public eye, who you think represents you and, and the way you speak? So I think the East Midlands is an area that does not get pretty much any coverage on on mainstream media at all. I mean, Gary Lineker is probably the only one I can think of. I can't remember the last time I heard a Northampton accent on, on television. Alan Moore, actually, is, is my accent. I get very excited when I hear him speak. And I guess it is a bit outside of my area, but when Vicky McClure was all over line of duty, I was like, oh, East Midlands, like, I was really, really excited to hear, like, an East Midlands accent on television, even though, as I say, it's a bit outside, it's stretching my region a bit, but you just don't get East Mids accents on, on telly. And even though, you know, I, I don't know, it, I've, no, I've noticed, it's enough to notice, basically, put it that way, that you just but don't It is don't exciting, it. isn't it, when you see yeah. someone with your accent? It's you really know, exciting. I'll even stretch towards Burnley, and I've never even been to Burnley. <laughs> you know, I think, oh, you know. <laughs> So, you know, from even anyone northern sometimes, I'm kind of like, so we imagine how people who who speak in an RP accent feel all the time. I think just to add to that as well, that even as, uh, so, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I probably consider, I probably am, technically speaking, in the East Midlands, but I very much come from sort of the South Yorkshire borders to the very top of the East Midlands. And I was really thinking about this, actually, sort of prior to the podcast. And the only time I can think where you would have heard a lot of people in the media who sound anything like me would probably have been on the news around the late 80s when the coal mines were going on strike and lots of people from the areas around where I grew up were sort of out. And I do do have a belief that the accent I do have is quite is perceived quite often as quite old fashioned just because of the way it sounds. And I wonder if that's part of it, because... We've almost disappeared from the news now. It's almost an old-fashioned thing in itself. But the lack of representation is quite frightening, I think, sometimes. And, yeah, no, nobody in the media sounds like me, and that's very strange. <laughs> I'd just like to say on that that uh, I believe re- representation is really important. Also, when it comes to foreign accent, people who come to the UK from abroad and they start speaking in English, and they actually have a good skill set as well. For example, talking about my own experience, when I joined university, there is somebody who's Italian and he, when he was delivering a talk to us, I felt that I could connect with him a lot more. 
and that was really good to see and that motivated me as well uh, this year I'm a class Europe so we have a cohort of 291 people and at the start of the year when I was campaigning to be a Europe we, we did little speeches at the front of the lecture theater with 300 around 300 people in the lecture theater it was really hard but uh, having seen that guy in the senior tutor team talking in a similar accent to mine I got some confidence as, as well so it helped me and I believe that this will help people further down the line in the future and as Gina was saying earlier the more diverse the team is the more ideas we can bring to the table and it can have a better outcome for everyone. So what other accent related indicators do you think add to accent slash background bias like mannerisms, slang, colloquialisms and dialects and things like that? This for me like I some really important questions because personally I've only ever lived in the south, I've only ever lived in the city I grew up in so I feel like I have an accent but like where I live I don't have an accent however the thing that I've experienced more discrimination for is like the dialect like the words I use and how I say them less than an actual accent you know like because my accent is regional and the reason I live in so I think it's really interesting how you can be from the same place and yet because you use like say words are slightly different or you use different a different dialect like you're othered from the people in the same place and like how do you guys feel like these other accent related indicators have an effect on accent bias? So I think that's a really interesting question and, and particularly I was interested in what Bilal was just saying as well because so I'm from an Italian background and in Italy there's lots of different well they call them dialects but actually they're languages like Neapolitan which is the language that my relatives speak or, or kind of that's that's the, the the kind of dialect that they're in and the way of what a dialect what a kind of very localization of language colloquialisms or whatever can place on people i think is really really interesting and how other people receive that how that's transmitted in terms of like the interpretation that other people like have on on it is is really interesting and i think that there's been lots of times when i for example have have kind of used a word that i would consider to be the right word for a particular thing and other people have found it i guess between somewhere like quaint and laughable do you, do you know what i mean and sort of how that i guess diminishes your confidence in yourself like in in what you're trying to say what you're trying to get across and the impact that that can then have on when you next might want to kind of like speak up and say something because you don't want to be laughed at you don't want to sound silly you don't want people to to, to kind of take the mickey out of you or whatever what I would also say is, I mean, I don't mind like having a bit of a laugh with friends about things and I wouldn't want that to stop. I wouldn't want to be going around saying like, look, don't mention my accent. I don't want to I don't want you to talk about it because I feel that it's quite intrinsically part of my identity and, and, and just who I am. Right. So therefore, if somebody like I come into contact with someone from a different part of the country, I'm happy for them to point it out and to, to, to talk about it and even have a bit of a, a gentle laugh about it. I think there's a difference between that and then when you feel like what we were talking about earlier, where hang about this is turning into a bit of a barrier here because this person is is seeing me as less than I am because of like how I'm talking or the words I'm using or what I'm saying. And that is, I think, tied up again, going back to the, the thing where people discount or de devalue your ideas or what you're trying to say just because of the presentation it's wrapped up in, just because of the box it comes in. And I think that that's, that's really problematic. I've no doubt that over the years and even today, 
loads of people have had loads of loads to contribute and lots to say and lots of great ideas about things that have just been completely chucked away because of of, of how it looks. Not sure if that's answered your question, Daisy, but I do think I do think colloquialisms, dialects, and all of that stuff, it's another kind of layer of things that that stop people being heard through no fault of their own but because of the the way they're interpreted by by people who perhaps don't understand them you know they don't see that as their problem for not understanding it they see it as the the person's problem for not communicating it in a in a more mainstream way in the first place uh, there's sort of two sort of i think things for me sort of feelings you get one is i feel quite proud to tell people about sort of what a certain thing means so it's quite a it, it's quite a nice sort of reminder of I suppose where you come from and sort of that background but there is also I suppose a little bit sort of underlying that probably don't think we don't think about as much which is very much it's just a reminder I don't belong here or I, I'm different to the people around me and that I don't think I won't go I won't go as far as to say it plays on the mind or it's anything like that but it it is just one of those sort of micro reminders every so often that this is not my usual my sort of setting I grew up in and I don't know, I can imagine over time, particularly in some settings, that could be quite wearing and quite tiring for people. And it's that reminder you're different, I suppose, yeah. to the people that are around you. Now, as Gino touched on very fairly, it's quite often this is in jest and it's in a very controlled and very a very agreeable setting. But it is yet again another one of those situations in life where you go, I'm not like a lot of the people at this table in a very minor way. And I can imagine particularly for people coming from more social mobile people come from backgrounds where people don't sound like the people at the table obviously a huge step to uh, have to overcome and sort of it's just another layer of feeling of not belonging i suppose i'd just like to say that i'm on the same page as matthew and gina was saying i don't mind uh, having a laugh about my accent uh, at all uh, as long as it is just having a laugh for example us italians we would we use a lot of hand gestures for example this hand gesture which uh, people can, uh, I'm totally fine with if uh, somebody makes a comment on that, but as long as it's not affecting me or discriminating against me, it's completely fine. Also, at the same time, if I want, as I said, I've lived in Manchester for six years, I can make my accent with Mancunian to try to fit in. But uh, why would, why should I have to do that? It doesn't change me from who I am as a person or my skill set. So people should be accepting of uh, different accents. And sometimes people do judge you from your accent and also the place you're working at. For example, as I said, I'm a medical student. If I work in KFC and a customer walks in and my accent is not a local accent as well, he would probably already be thinking that um, I don't have really good skill set because mm -hmm. of my accent and then also the place I'm working at. Yeah, definitely. And I think we should be applying that pressure to people as well. Are there any advantages to having an accent? I would say probably. So, I mean, for the bulk of my career, I've worked in some form of management. So whether that be analytics teams or just general operational teams and having that sort of slightly Yorkshire twang to my accent. I don't know why I find it. People tend to find it quite approachable and quite a friendly sort of version of of English for a lot of people. Now, no one's ever explicitly ever said this to me, but I do find quite often when I have to have sometimes quite difficult conversations with people, I think the accent helps. I think it sort of can disarm people a little bit and people are a bit less defensive around it. So in some ways it can be an advantage and I do believe that. Now I'm quite happy not to lose that <laughs> but um, but no I, I think in my case I would say probably yeah. I think uh, it does. A few of them would be for example 
uh, when you are an open-minded person and you do want you do want to discover other people's backgrounds and uh, for example you like traveling as well for example you then you you can start by asking people about for example making a small comment like i like your accent where are you from and it can be an icebreaker and from there you can go on and you can get to know the people a person as well i think uh, yeah it's really nice and it does have advantages to have an accent yeah i i think it's excellent for being in a situation where people don't expect much of you and then you blow them away with your content and that kind of helps change their view of you and other people like you and it feels good it feels really great (laughs) (laughs) so there's definitely been occasions as well just it helps to stand out sometimes professionally and to be the person in the room that people can remember afterwards and definitely if you sound different, that's a good starting point in some mm. cases. I totally agree with that. I think that sticking out a little bit sometimes has an enormous advantage. Everyone, thank you so much for your time today. Matthew, Gino, Bilal. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today. Welcome to the Class Ceiling Podcast. Hi, it's nice to have you here. Yeah, really nice to get to speak to both of you. So our first question is about the recent Sutton Trust report on the Speaking Out Research and Report. What was the purpose of that research and the resulting report? So it's long been known that people have kind of prejudices against different accents and that some people have experienced accent bias. And we also know that there's kind of prejudice against different social economic backgrounds in the workplace. So whether someone's from a working class background, a middle class background in terms of their family, what their parents did. But very little has been known about how the two interact and whether, for instance, people who are from working class backgrounds are more likely to experience accent bias in education settings in the workplace. Now, while certain accents, so things like received pronunciation or Queen's English, the kind of thing you hear on the BBC a lot, that kind of accent really commonly is from people from higher social economic backgrounds. And also some like kind of northern, previously industrial city accents tend to be more associated with people from working class backgrounds. But it's not an absolute. And, you know, everyone will know you'll get people in Manchester, say, with a Mancunian accent who are actually from quite a well-off background. So we wanted to understand a bit more what the relationship was across those two factors, rather than what had previously been done, where people kind of assumed that if you've got an accent, you must be from kind of a working class background. We wanted to pull that relationship out a bit more. That's so interesting, because I'm from Manchester, and obviously I have an accent. And I always say that I'd never met a middle class person before I went to university (laughs) because I do actually think that northern people, and I suppose I could only speak for Manchester, are a bit less middle class than southern people, even though they may have the trappings and education. I think because of the industrial history of the north, I think working class culture is much more predominant than in the south. I've never thought about that before. The relationship is quite complicated. There's lots of different ways you can look at class and some can be around cultural things and the kind of social networks you have and the sorts of jobs people you know have. But there's also things around 
family wealth and kind of the type of job somebody has in terms of the income they get. And all of those things mix up and it can make it quite tricky to pull apart. But broadly, of course, there will be people from Manchester who kind of have very professional jobs, maybe work in things in like the media and have an accent, especially kind of going over time now that some of those jobs are starting to spread out more. You'll see kind of more of that as well. Yeah. BBC being a good example. Exactly. What are some of the key findings from the Speaking Out research and report? So really worrying, the report found that accent prejudice is very common. So 30% of university students and 25% of professionals in the workplace said that they were mocked, criticised or singled out in an education setting or the workplace because of their accent. So that's really worrying. This isn't only asking people who say they have an accent. This is out of everybody. That's the proportion of those whole populations who are saying this is something that's impacted us, which is obviously really, really concerning as to how common that kind of experience is. We also found some really important differences in how people are experiencing these kind of biases. So in earlier life stages, where you're from, so people who are from kind of the north of England and the Midlands, had a bigger amount of kind of anxiety over their accents. Whereas in kind of midlife, once you get into professional employment, social class was a much better predictor of how anxious people are about their accent. So that's really concerning. But at all life stages, respondents from lower social grades were significantly more likely to say they'd been mocked or singled out in either the kind of workplace or social settings because of their accents. There's definitely a difference there in terms of people's experiences. And if we look at senior managerial roles, people in those roles from lower social economic backgrounds, so from kind of poorer families, 21% were worried that accent could affect their ability to succeed in the future. But that was only 12% for the same group who are from better off families. So certainly social class is really impacting how people are experiencing these kind of worries and this kind of criticism around their accents. Yeah, I think your comments about kind of like the intersection between accent and social class is really important. Um, like really, really important because it's showing like how maybe there is like a accepted accent, as you said, like the Queen's English versus an accent that deviates from that, you know. And then I think that, yeah, that's really interesting. Given the findings and you found that working class people are more affected by these issues and that uh, accent prejudice is very common, do you think employers should offer training to increase awareness and do you think this would suppress accent bias in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. So the researchers who did this work had done previous work that actually found that if you do training where you just kind of read out a sentence about the kind of unconscious bias that people have around accents, two people before they do recruitment that actually that can have a really big difference and while unconscious bias training can have issues and there's lots of kind of disputed literature around it because people are less kind of aware of the biases they can have around accents reminding them of it just before they do something like recruitment actually can have a really big impact in terms of what they then go on to do So there's certainly training that could help in terms of reducing the impact of these biases. Why do you think accent bias in Britain has remained consistent over time? And what needs to change in order to stop the accent bias remaining consistent? So I think a big issue is we're still not hearing enough of a diversity of accents in our everyday lives. So if you look across kind of 
what you hear on TV or the politicians that you hear speaking, people who are in kind of positions of power in business and the people we hear day to day in those kind of positions of authority, most of them do still have that kind of BBC English, Queen's English perceived pronunciation. And actually only 10% of the whole population have that accent, but way more of the people we see in those kind of roles have that kind of expected accent. So I think it's only once we start seeing that diversity of accents and people who are in kind of positions of power that it will change our perceptions about what it means to have different accents. Because it's all too easy to think, well, that person speaks in a certain way. They've got that kind of BBC English. Therefore, what they have to say is worth listening to. Whereas for someone with accents we're less familiar with, it can be much easier to think, well, I'm not sure if I trust that voice because that's not a voice I'm used to hearing saying things from a place of authority. So it goes at every level that we really need to make sure that there are opportunities kind of across the UK for those really top jobs. So the BBC being based in Salford for some of their work is like a really good example of that, where there are more diverse opportunities throughout the country. We also need to do stuff like end unpaid internships. So quite often people in London who can stay living with their parents find it way easier to get into some of the most competitive industries because they've got that base. They can afford to do the unpaid internship whilst living at home and not paying rent. Whereas someone who's from, say, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, there won't be as many of those kind of opportunities on their doorstep. So it's much harder for them to be able to access those opportunities. So it's spreading those opportunities, making sure that they're paid so they're more easily accessible for people everywhere. And then once people are in the workplace, it's about actually tackling that bias and discrimination. So making it clear to people that it is not acceptable in the same way that being racist, sexist in the workplace is unacceptable to mock or kind of belittle somebody because of their accent. And I think if we start getting those kind of changes, we'll see a bigger diversity of the kind of accents we hear in those sorts of roles every day. And then that is what can really impact people's underlying biases and beliefs about those kind of accents. What you're saying about tackling unconscious bias before a job interview or an opportunity interview is that if you just speak a little bit of sense to people making those decisions in advance, they're more likely to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. If you remind people that we all have these kind of unconscious biases and to be really aware of them and thinking about them when they're listening to people, that absolutely research shows it can make a difference in terms of what they then go on to do. I mean, it's such a cheap and simple solution, isn't it, for some improvement? It's just a little bit of extra thought. Yeah, and if people want to find that kind of brief few sentences to read before recruitment, if you go on the Sutton Trust website and look up the report, in the report there's a link through to, it has the actual text there, as well as a short 15-minute training that they can use for employees to be able to actually go a little bit further in terms of thinking about those issues as well. So if people are listening to this and thinking, I want to change that in my workplace, that's where to find the resources to be able to start doing that. Fantastic. I'm going to send that up to HR straight after this recorder. From the Speaking Out report compiled by the Sutton Trust, there is evidence 
to suggest that younger people are less likely to have accent bias as opposed to older people. Also, it appears to be that via age grading that suggests our attitudes to accents are not changing, but rather we become more critical as we get older. And why do you think people seem to change their attitude over time? I think a lot of it is that as people go into the workplace, they kind of become socialised to the norms already there. So even if people, when they're younger, say they're at university, are much more kind of open and accepting, they then go into the workplace and kind of learn the behaviours that are already there around what kind of accent's acceptable, how they expect people to speak. And then they end up kind of transmitting that on to future generations. I think it's definitely kind of hopeful that younger people do end up with less prejudices to start. And that gives us a good base to be able to tackle these issues. But at the moment, the workplace is too much kind of replicating that issue going forward and meaning that as people get older, their attitudes are getting worse. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's disappointing, but it's, it's good to know the writing on the wall, isn't it? So we can make those changes. The report also concludes that original accent anxiety, as you mentioned earlier, is linked to place of origin and then later focuses on social class. What do you think is happening here? So I think when you're younger, it's a lot easier to be able to pick out and think about issues like north-south bias that you can hear on the TV, that you're hearing a lot of southern accents, and not very many northern accents and anything kind of like that. And it seems easier to notice and pick out how that could affect you in future if you have, say, a northern accent and you're used to hearing a lot of southern accents. Whereas I think social economic background can feel a lot more complicated and be a lot more hidden. So you can't tell just from listening to people necessarily what their class background is. Maybe they've altered their accent as they've gone into the workplace and you can't hear it anymore. And you can't actually tell in that way, like what their class background is. So it's quite tricky some of the time to be able to pull all of those effects apart. And I think that means that when people are younger, they can focus on that kind of north-south divide regional issues and really see that as the the thing they think that's really going to impact them whereas once people from working class backgrounds go into the workplace and they start experiencing that discrimination where people from middle class backgrounds perhaps have some kind of protection they might find it a bit easier to assimilate take on a different accent they might find it easier to copy other behaviors in the workplace and then be less vulnerable to other kinds of discrimination around that accent because they've picked up other cues that they're kind of meant to be following, meant very much in inverted commas, as in it's the expectation within that workplace. So then people from working class backgrounds really feel that discrimination. You know, that's then the thing that's really impacting them, that then means that they're reporting those biases, we think, more often. So we think that might be the reason behind those differences, but we don't know at this point for sure. How is the public reporting and kind of the stereotyping of females with regional accents? I'm talking specifically or mostly about kind of northern accents here. Like we see stereotyping in a lot of movies and TV where um, they'll have like a dumb female character and they'll be given a northern accent to portray that. But then also in real life news reporting and such of like Angela Rayner she's portrayed as being quite rough despite like being an actual MP and having like assumably a fair amount of money to go alongside that how do you think these kind of stereotypes that are being reported and the perception of women with regional accent contributes to the exasperation of accent bias? 
So again, it's all about the kind of underlying expectations and stereotypes people have around accents and how they base that on what they're familiar with. So as you say, the example, if in a film they're always kind of or quite often using as a lazy shorthand for someone who's kind of, you know, stupid or slower, if those characteristics are always people from kind of northern backgrounds, if it's women from those kind of backgrounds, that gets set in your mind as an easy way to look at somebody and hear somebody and think, what do I expect from them? What is the norm? What have I seen day to day? We all have biases. It's a quick way for us to get to stuff in the world. And that's why it's so important that we're aware of them and really question and think about them. I think as well, the example of Angela Rayner is a really good one, because as you say, she's, you know, she's risen up to a really impressive kind of place in the Labour Party. She's obviously a really impressive woman in terms of what she's achieved and where she's gotten to. But she's spoken out quite openly, saying that people think that she's kind of thick because of her accent. And it's feeding back in that she gets kind of attacked in the media for like, they say, not using the right grammar when she's speaking in Parliament. That then means people online start saying that kind of stuff to her and calling her stupid and thick and saying she doesn't understand grammar. And then that goes to you know, impacting how she's feeling about how she's doing her job. And she's spoken quite openly saying that she really worries about if that's whether, you know, what people in her constituency think of her, what the electorate think of her. And that really pushes her to work as hard as possible to kind of prove that she is able to do that role. Now, if you take kind of a man from maybe the southeast of England, who's from a middle class background, they are just not contending with that. That's something in their day to day job when they go and speak in Parliament. They're not getting newspaper reports saying their grammar's awful. Aren't they so stupid? Doesn't this really tell us something about that person? And that makes the job easier for that person. And that's how you end up seeing those kind of biases play out. And again, because people are seeing that in the media, that's then impacting again what they think of those kind of accents because they're being told it means somebody is kind of stupid or they don't understand grammar properly. So it's that vicious cycle that then means that those kind of beliefs and stereotypes are being brought forward then as well. And every now and again, you get something that really adds fuel to the fire. I don't know if you remember the Vicky Pollard thing from Little Britain. Mm -hmm, Yeah, yeah, but no, but and I was seen at the time, I was on social media, and I was seen at the time really left-leaning, really right on friends going to fancy dress parties as a, a Vicky Pollard, when I was kind of thinking, why? how is that acceptable to mock the working classes like that? But it just became a fuel to the fire, I think. Normalised it. Absolutely. And I think class bias and kind of having that kind of discrimination by class background is the thing in terms of diversity that we're just not far enough on yet. People are becoming much more aware of issues around sexism, racism, disability, discrimination. Absolutely not there with any of those yet, but they are much more kind of people are aware of them in their day-to-day lives and that they know they need to try to act on them. Class discrimination is not as far forward in that. And people quite often still think it is acceptable to discriminate on the basis of class on accent. And that's something that we just really need to alter our attitudes on in society and and really notice when that is happening. 
I think the character of Vicky Pollard is like incredibly important because even like just the other day I saw a tweet comparing like a clearly working class young girl who was an argument on a train with someone like comparing her to Vicky Pollard and basically like discriminating against her because of her accent and I think it stings most with that because I feel like working class people themselves use this depiction of the working class or like the chav and they use it to kind of other themselves from that so it creates like a whole like like basically the concept of the underclass they kind of distance them from like they say well you know I'm working class but I'm not chav I'm not that you know and I feel like it it's just really frustrating because some people will see all of us like that and I think that character in particular is one of the worst things because the amount of times I've heard that like as a working class woman who like has interesting dialect and I have much of an accent because I'm from Southampton but um, yeah um, I feel like it's kind of used to undermine us a lot of the time like if we have like genuine anger about something or if we're genuinely like I don't say arguing is probably a bit of a strong word, but talking about something we like, then that character and that kind of yeah, but no, but thing can be used against us to undermine us and basically kind of almost dehumanise us and like put us down to being a basic character trope. And it is dehumanising, absolutely. There's loads of examples and usually women as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's feeding back into that stereotype and underlying expectations people then have of people with a similar accent who speak in a similar way that then means that they're not being taken seriously, that their kind of potential talent, their abilities aren't being considered in an equal way. And I think, yeah, class discrimination and taking it seriously is something we really need to move forward on in society. Why do you think that the university experience fosters a heightened level of accent anxiety? It's really interesting. I think for a lot of people, because universities quite often have people from all over the country there, It can be one of the kind of first places where they experience themselves that people have these different accents and start seeing the impact of people maybe treating them differently because of the way they speak. Whereas when they're in their community, that's not something they're likely to have experienced before. So I think that can really heighten anxiety around accent when people are first having that experience. Interestingly as well, we found that that anxiety increases over the time people are at university towards when they're about to go into the workplace. And we think that's really people worrying that once they go into the workplace, they're then going to suffer because they don't have the right accent, speak in the right way. And that's then a really kind of fundamental worry because they're so anxious about being able to get a job, make that next step. Whereas once they get into the workplace, they've then had a bit of time maybe they've altered their accents and they're not experiencing it in the same way anymore they've got a bit more experience and that can then we think mean that that anxiety is a bit lower that said it's not a lot lower and there are still lots of instances of people being worried or being criticized or mocked because of that accent even when people get in the workplace but certainly university seems to be kind of the height of people's worries about it Yeah, and it's a very middle-class space. We talk about all universities, some more than others are middle-class spaces. And I think the concept of protection was interesting that you mentioned earlier, Rebecca, about um, assimilation of accent as a form of protection, which clearly implies that if you don't have a certain accent, you have less social protection. So can there ever be a sense of belonging from working class students and employees in the higher education environment when they're still self-conscious about their accents? I don't think you're ever going to have a level playing field where this kind of discrimination and concerns around accent is still there. 
And I think that's very much down to people who run those spaces to make clear that any kind of discrimination, any kind of attacks on people because of that accent are just like totally unacceptable. Now, that then means you start getting into more of a positive kind of cycle where people go through those systems, they alter what the general perceptions within those systems are and make it a bit easier for the people that then come through the next time and change what people's expectations are, basically. So I think there is hope that there can be improvement, but we have to tackle that underlying kind of discrimination and bias. The Speaking Out report detailed that some students' employers make a concerted effort to change their accents. What are the effects of doing this on individuals, as in what are the actual effects on the person of feeling the need and having to master the accent in order to access education and workplace environments? I think it can be really tricky and I think it can be very difficult for those individuals who feel that kind of pressure and end up kind of creating this split feeling between how they feel in certain spaces where they're kind of altering that accent and trying to fit in versus how they feel kind of at home and in their community. I don't know if you'll be even be able to tell anymore, but my accent is from the West Country. So I'm from just outside of Bristol. And I definitely did that when I went to university. So um, the one I always really remember is that how I say tooth, which I used to say is tooth, was like really, really mocked. Like every single time I said it, several people would comment, make fun of me. So obviously, eventually, I just stopped doing it. And I just started saying tooth. And that's what I say now. And it does create quite a bit of disconnect for me that when I go back to Bristol, and I can really hear the accent now, and hear that it's different from mine. But that also makes me feel quite sad. And all my family's accents are quite different to mine now. And I think it can be quite personally difficult to kind of feel a bit, yeah, stuck between two different worlds in quite an unpleasant way. And again, it's that kind of vicious cycle that people, even when they are from more diverse places and they get in those professional roles, if they've then gone through that process, you're not hearing it anymore. It's harder to tell that that's where they're from. And then people think, I can't go into that kind of role because no one with my kind of accent is there, even though people who did have that kind of accent maybe are in those sorts of roles. One of the things, though, that we've said in terms of the recommendations in the report is actually the researchers have found that you get a lot less accent bias if you show expertise and you speak confidently. So there is a lot of hope for individuals that actually, if you change your accent, that can make you feel a bit unconfident, worried that you're really questioning how you're speaking. But actually being confident and showing the stuff that you know is the most powerful thing in terms of being taken seriously rather than altering your accent. Now, that's really easy for you know us to tell young people, like, don't worry, you don't have to change your accent. It's going to be fine as long as you're confident. Every individual has to make a decision themselves as to the space they're in, what they feel like they're able to do. But certainly research suggests that they would be better placed to focus on confidence and really showing their expertise through that confidence rather than trying to alter their accent as an individual. As you've spoken about, Rebecca, you yourself had experience of being mocked for your accent and how you pronounce certain words. How do you think we can put some changes in and implement stuff in order for this to not be acceptable anymore, where there will be real consequences for doing this? So I think it's got to come from two different places. So one has to be the employers, the educational establishments. If they get a report of accent bias, treating it really seriously, treating it like sexism, racism, 
and having similar kinds of consequences in terms of what happens to the person who, who has done that. Because a lot of this kind of mocking and the mocking I had myself was largely in kind of social settings at university outside of kind of lectures and courses. And that has to be about individuals, especially those who aren't being impacted like by it themselves, but who are seeing it, that they need to call it out when they see it. If you're in a social setting and people are being mocked because of that accent, you need to say that's not acceptable. It can't just be the people who have accents who are experiencing that having to do it on their own. Obviously, if people feel like they're able to and they have an accent and they want to call it out, great. But kind of allies, people more widely need to see whenever they get any kind of experience or see accent discrimination, they need to call it out and tell people it's just not acceptable because it's only through that kind of social pressure more widely that people start to have that shift and see like this isn't something it's okay for somebody to say. And I think that's the only way you're going to start to get that kind of long term change on it. Why is accent representation so important? I think a big bit of it is. So everyone should have a kind of equal right to end up in kind of roles that are influential. We should have people from all parts of society in those kind of roles because they make decisions about all of our lives. And if you don't have them being representative, you don't get that kind of range of views and experiences that means you can make good decisions that actually benefit everybody. And I think the other side is every individual should have an equal right to access roles that are fulfilling and interesting if they've got the ability to do them. It shouldn't be about your class background, your accent, any of that. But if we have this kind of bias and experience and discrimination, you're putting up a barrier for lots of people to be able to get that diverse set of people in those roles and bring in that diverse set of talent and experience So I think accent representation matters for absolutely everybody. It's about people that have accents, seeing themselves in those roles and thinking, yes, I could do something like that as well. But it's also about having kind of good systems and structures in place for all of us that bring in everybody in society. So we get the best decisions made so we can have kind of that coherent society that everybody feels a part of. So I think, yeah, accent representation is really important to make sure that we have actually good decisions made for all of us. So which environments in particular have an issue with accents? Yeah, so I think it tends to be kind of professional sectors that are centred around kind of London and the South East that have the biggest challenges with this. Because it's more established in those kind of areas that there will be a certain accent and that's the expectation And there are so many people who can compete for roles in those places who do fit that kind of mould and that expectation in terms of accent. It also tends to be, especially in terms of an expectation from uh, the employer for people to moderate that accent, things that have a lot of like client facing work where they're kind of worried about the perception of the client as well. So like financial services can be one of those where there's a certain expectation about how someone should come across to a client. Things like kind of politics, the civil service, courtrooms, the corporate sector, all of those have that kind of dominance of that received pronunciation, Queen's English type accent. And again, I think it's in all of those environments, calling it out and making sure people are aware of it. And also on the part of the kind of client facing services that clients start saying, why am I always seeing this kind of accent 
people from your firm, where's the diversity here? So I think it needs to come from kind of all ends. Yeah, and for them to really mean it rather than class washing and kind of setting these targets like a lot of organisations do and consistently don't meet them year on year, um, which just perpetuates the same culture as um, as highlighted in Sam Friedman's um, Navigating a Labyrinth report for the civil service was um, was calling out that kind of culture really, wasn't it? I thought it was brilliant. So we have students worried about going to university and self-conscious about their accents, moving towards the labour market, as you say, that increases the anxiety, worrying about being hired, and then more anxiety about getting ahead and progressing in their careers, all because of the way they speak or because of the way we speak. How much of a barrier do you think this experience is creating on the career journey of thousands of people who happen to speak in a certain way? I think that's a really interesting question and I think it's one we need to do a lot more work on because we don't have a good understanding of kind of who is falling out of that pipeline because of experiences around accent and it could happen at any stage. It could be somebody thinking quite early on in a career trajectory that field is not for me, nobody there sounds like me, no one there is like me, I'm never going to go into it to start. Or you might have that people start a journey within a career, then they encounter accent bias and they think, I'm done, this is not for me. And with anything, those decisions can be a complicated set of lots of different factors, including that experience of discrimination. And it's hard to know exactly when that is what has tipped somebody to make that decision. But I think it would be really interesting to try to understand more who has different accents at different stages of that journey and where are people falling off? to be able to understand better exactly which bits of it are causing people to end up dropping out, leaving that sector, not considering it. And how many talented young people are we then missing from those sectors because of those kind of issues? Because I think knowing that can be really powerful for employers to help them to to actually act and see how big of an impact it's having if they don't tackle it. So the report offers valuable insight into lived experience of those with accents. How important is um, access to lived experiences in order for generating change, especially around unconscious biases and conscious biases, let's be real, (laughs) and things like that surrounding accents? I think it's really important and it helps so much to deepen our understanding of the ways in which these experiences play out and the real kind of complications and nuances as to how people experience this day to day. So part of the report, we included quotes from people talking about the kind of issues they themselves had experienced. And I think it helps so much with the understanding of, okay, you're saying people are being mocked and criticised. What does that really mean? So, for instance, one of the quotes was a civil servant basically saying people had told them, I don't really know how you can be a civil servant when you sound like that. That's not what civil servants sound like. And I think hearing that really brings home actually what it's like for people day to day to be experiencing this. And I'll just read you this quote from someone who has an estuary English accent and worked in law. So they said, I applied for a promotion three years running. My law school head told me to apply and said that I easily met the criteria. I was not given promotion for the third time. I recall her feedback words to me. The VC had said, great candidate, shame about the voice. I don't know if this attitude affected my previous attempts, but I was very upset and went to elocution lessons after to be told by the tutor there that I was a hopeless case, in inverted commas. 
After completing the bar course to become a barrister at an official dinner, I felt picked on by a judge who singled me out and bombarded me with questions. The other people in attendance all had BBC accents. So there you can really powerfully see through this person's journey in the workplace that there's these multiple times that they're really getting this discrimination because of their accent and how that's making them feel in terms of their attitude towards their career, their ability to progress. And I think that is really powerful to hear those kind of firsthand experiences in a way that just numbers in the data in terms of the proportion of people saying that they've experienced something just can't actually tell you. It's so important we hear these experiences because the emotional reaction to it is important. That's what helps to push us to get change on it. And I think hearing from people's lived experience of what they've actually had to deal with day to day can help to kind of push us as society to think this isn't acceptable. Like we need to change this. We can't have people experiencing this. Rebecca, you've been a brilliant guest. Thank you so much for your time today. It's an area I'm super, super interested in and I've learned so much and I'm going to share some of the learning that you shared with the staff and our social mobility network. Great. Thank you so much. Really nice to get to meet both of you. It was wonderful to have you. You gave really good answers. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Class Ceiling Podcast. Smashing the Class Ceiling.